That's good. It's a good start. If some people leave, I'm sorry. So I'm going to read the scripture. It's Revelation 1, verses 8. Okay, actually, if you don't, who doesn't have a Bible? Okay, I won't ask you to put your hand up because that's, that's odd. If you don't have a digital one or a physical one, we have ushers who have copies of this scripture that I can give out to you because I'm going to go through all the weird stuff and the descriptions of burnished bronze and all that. So I want you to be able to see it in front of you. So we have folks, so if you have one, she's going to be, oh, we have more than one. Hand up would be great because we will go through it. Remember, the scriptures are, uh, you know, I don't preach on the Bible. I preach from the Bible. That's what a preacher should be doing. So you are now my, hopefully, students. You come as pupils. But um, if I don't preach what's in this book, you have every right to give me trouble. Okay? And I welcome it. So it'll be up on the screen as well. I'm reading from the ESV. So if you don't have an ESV, you're welcome to look up on the screen. Hopefully it goes up in that. So it's Revelation 1, verses 8 to 18. Okay. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Theatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of those lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, or like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Awesome. So, let's begin. This is going to be half lecture, half sermon. Okay, I'm going to train you to understand Revelation very quickly. So, up on the screen, I'm going to show you a picture. You can put that up there. Now, if I show you this picture and ask you to write on a piece of paper, which I've done, I've, I've gone through this book uh, verse by verse with, with other churches, and I've asked people, what is this picture saying? And, of course, you're going to interpret it. Uh, you don't know much about it. All you see is a dragon consuming a city. So you're not sure. You're going to say Godzilla. Um, who knows? You'll come up with some ideas. Evil. Um, would it help if I told you that that was printed in the Los Angeles Times in 1999, just before China took over Hong Kong? So the dragon of China consuming the city, the civilized city of Hong Kong. Okay? Now, what allows you to not run away with that image and create all kinds of fantastic ideas is you know the context. You know why it was created. If I didn't give you that context, I don't know what I would see from you. You may say all kinds of things. The more artistic and poetic of you may come up with something really off the wall, um, but who knows? 
One thing's for sure, you would only understand what it meant by accident if, I didn't, if you didn't know the context. So why is it that you and I read Revelation and read all these crazy, what we think are crazy images, without knowing the context? Because it allows us to run away and create websites that lead you astray. Okay? I know I'm being very hard on some people. Um, but there is something to be said. Listen, Revelation is a weird book. I'm not going to change that for you. But it will help you see it as something that you can actually read and could actually help you rather than just avoid. Okay? So, let's go into the context of John. John is an apostle. He is in jail around in the, in the 90s AD, so about 30 years after Paul and Peter have been killed in the persecutions of Nero. John is in, in, on prison, he says, because of the word of the Lord. You see it there. This is what's happening in John's life and why he's probably in jail. John is a pastor. He has multiple churches he oversees, and he is in jail because there's an emperor named Domitian, and Domitian is, well, you can read about him, a strange guy, a little self-conscious, um, has many rules. And one of them is he demands that every member of the, of the Roman Empire, once a year at least, go to a temple uh, of emperor worship, drop some incense on the altar, and say, Kaiser Curios. So the Lord, or, or Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord. Christians refused, by and large, to do that like John. So then they're thrown in jail. But that wasn't it. It's not like you're just thrown in jail. So I know there may be kids here, but I have to be somewhat graphic. 40,000 Christians were killed under the reign of Domitian, what John is going through. Remember, John is preaching, and he's, he's worshiping on a Sunday, and he's, this is his life. His churches are in trouble. 40,000 have been killed. Some were tied to horses, and then the horses were told to run in different directions and torn apart. Some had holes drilled in their skull and molten lead poured into it while they're alive. Now, when John is praying, and he is a pastor with that kind of thing going on in his churches, do you think that Jesus shows up and gives him a vision that is going to be a riddle exclusively, meant for 2,000 years later about Saddam Hussein or anything else? Or is it probably, it may mean that. You see, that's the great thing about Scripture. It means something to the original hearers, and it also means something to us. But unless you understand what it meant to John, it's going to be hard to really understand what it means for us. John is in a place where he needs to know that the gospel is true. He's believing in something that doesn't look like it's true because the world is crumbling around him. His friends are being killed, persecuted. He's in jail, on pr in prison. He's an old man. Peter and Paul were both killed in the persecutions of Nero many years earlier, 30 years earlier. So when he's sitting there and he turns around and sees Christ speaking to him, what he needs is to be assured that God still is in charge. First and foremost, that's what the churches needed amidst all the earthquakes going on. They needed to know that God was still there firmly under them. Okay? And you need to remember that idea of who God is speaking to here throughout this chapter, throughout the book. It's always an attempt to tell John and us, by the way, things are not as they seem. Remember Wizard of Oz? They pull the curtain back and you see how things really are? What is happening here is God, you know revelation means the unveiling? It's not the revelation like the unveiling of Christ, but it's Christ also revealing himself, saying, John, for a minute, I'm going to pull the curtain back what you see is persecution and Rome. I'm going to pull the curtain back and let you see what's actually happening so that you can endure anything. 
so that amidst all your trouble, you can endure whatever comes your way. Okay, that's what's going on here. Let's get into, you can take the picture off, or unless you want to look at it, it's up to you. So we're going to look at three things. Unless you can understand, this is the challenge for us. We need to really understand that Christ is over us, with us, and under us. Okay? Those three things come out in the scripture, and we'll go through it piece by piece. The first thing is over us. So this is the first thing Jesus shows John. So look at the language in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You've heard that before. Um, The Alpha and the Omega are not just the first and the last, though he says the first and the last. See, we think A to Z. Alpha, by the way, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. He also says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, the Alpha is not merely um, uh, the, as if, you know, you're the first one. Okay, think of an assembly line. This is probably the better way to do it. When he says the Alpha and the Omega and the first and the last, the Greek words there are protos, first, Same word Paul uses when he calls himself the protos of sinners, by the way, the first, the chief among them. So I am the protos, and the last is the eschatos, or eschaton, where we get eschatology from, if you're big nerds. Um, So first and the last, but it doesn't just mean if you're at the Toyota plant up the road, you see the guy working on the assembly line who creates the car, who puts it together, you could, in one way, he is the first. He is the creator of that car. But that's not what this word means. What God is saying, what Jesus is saying, is I'm not just the guy on the assembly line. I'm Henry Ford. I'm not just the one who puts it together. I'm the one who created it and gave it meaning. I'm the one who designed it. And that's the difference between us just thinking, oh, he's, he's our creator. Far more than that, because the creator, he's the designer. Something much grander than just he, he's your, uh, your builder. And the last one, the eschatos, is uh, even more fascinating because it it has this idea in it of of destiny. So, you know, you and I are used to speaking this way, of saying, my life, you know, my destiny, I was meant to be a teacher. I was meant to be a pastor. I was meant to be a baseball player, whatever it was. That's not what this is saying. What, what this says, this, this term, the, te- the es- eschatos, actually the telos is the best, better act, um, example of this word, is it means the destiny. So if an acorn is a thing, well, it's telos, it's, it's ending, it's, it's, it's destiny is to be an oak tree. And if Jesus is saying to you and I and to John, I am your destiny, you know what that means? John, your destiny is not to be a pastor. It's not even to be a martyr. Your destiny is to be in me. At the end, you can't escape me, is what Christ is saying here. I am above everything. You're going to see me at the end, and I won't care how many degrees you have or how much your family is wonderful or how, how great your Instagram account was. You will see, be face-to-face with me. I am your destiny. You are meant to be in me. Christ calls you for him, by him, and to him. Nothing else. He is the destiny. So he's kind of, what he's doing right away, Jesus here, is saying, John, I know what you're looking at, but focus on me. I am everything, not this. Not this you see around. Now, that's not easy to, to, uh, to simply believe, but you know how you believe it? This is the practical portion of this first point. How do you really believe in those hard times that God is over everything, that he really is in charge? See, I don't like when we say God is in control. You know why? Because who was in control at Auschwitz? Was it God? 
have to be careful of the words you use. God is in control, but not the way you think. Not the way you think. Now, how has it helped to look at this? You see, the gospel is not something that, you, that saves you, and then you're done with it until you see Christ. The gospel, this idea of what Christ has done for you, is something you use every single day. You repeat it to yourself. You pray it to yourself. You sing it to you. You have to remind yourself, and this is why. Sarah does not like tense movies. That's my wife, by the way. She hates tense movies. And um, because she doesn't like that feeling, you know, when you're always like, what's going to happen? But you know what happens the second time you see that movie? And the third time you see that movie? By then, it's not as scary. Because even when the kids are starting to quake at, I don't know, my kids, my kids are pretty tame. They, like, get scared at veggie tales. But um, <laughs> that's true. So, but you know what? Once you've stared at the ending long enough, if you've stared at this truth over and over, when the trouble starts to happen, your friends getting molten lead poured in their head, you breaking bricks on the island of Patmos, bleaching in the Greek sun, what is it that will sustain you? You can say, I've seen this before. I've watched it before. So now when I watch Lord of the Rings with my poor wife, who had to watch it in the theater at first, who was tense in that second movie, I could say to her, you know what? I've read the books. Don't worry, I know how it's going to end. That guy's not going to die. But that's only because I, re I rehearsed the story. I stared at it over and over and over so that when it came, it doesn't mean I enjoyed it. It doesn't mean you're going to enjoy the trials that come. John isn't loving what's happening to him, but he can understand it, and it doesn't break him. And that's the first point. If you don't understand Christ is over everything, that he is the great and powerful Oz, then it's going to be hard for you to endure. So that's, that's the first point. I get excited about this topic. You may have noticed. Part two, he is with us. So this one is more fun. So again, remember, John is needing assurance. I need to know that, see, if God is just up there puppeting things, then that's fine, that's good, but it's not best. Because what makes the difference is that he's not just up there, but he's here. Remember when, when Paul is converted on the road to Damascus in Acts 9? Jesus shows up and he doesn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Here's, a, here's, a, here's one that'll challenge you. Could you think right now that there is a king, the king of all the universe is a human being right now? Christ is still a man in heaven? And that he's a wounded man? He'll come back and one day he won't be wounded, but right now he's wounded in heaven. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? And you know that because he shows up after the resurrection wounded. He says, you're persecuting me. He still suffers. One day he won't when he comes back triumphant, as Revelation says. But right now, there's a man out there. Now, he suffers with us, and it's in this imagery. So now you can look at this stuff that you gloss over sometimes. Those parts, those descriptions of him. And let's walk through each one of them, and we're going to see what John would have seen. Okay? So John then hears the, uh, this voice, and he turns around, and he sees Jesus. But was it Jesus? Let's look. So first... I was speaking, to, and turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. What are the seven gold lampstands? Churches, okay? The church, the seven churches that Paul, uh, sorry, John referenced at the start. So in the midst of these seven churches, who is in the middle of them? Not on the outside, not playing puppet from above, but in the middle of the churches, Christ. Standing in the midst of them, John says. You see, he's not just looking from the outside, he is there with them. Have you ever noticed, if you keep reading Revelation, he, in all the letters he sends to the churches, he says, um, I know your suffering. I know who you are. How does he know? 
because he's in the midst of the churches. So he's with them. Keep going. Uh, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Who wears a white, uh, long robe? Kings or priests? You can pick whatever you want because he's both. Now, the sash is the interesting part. See, you and I don't have many kings walking around. But a king, when his sash, you know, you've seen the sash. Miss America wears them now. Um, it wasn't meant to be funny, but I guess it is. Um, so he has it around what part? Around his chest. You see, there's two different ways. Depending on how the king is wearing it will tell you what they're doing. And when it's around his chest, it means the work is done. He's sitting in his throne and just ruling. So... Why is that important? When John's world is collapsing around him and he looks up to the throne, it's not vacant. It's not occupied by somebody else. It's occupied by Christ who has done the work. It's finished. It's, he doesn't need to think this is a work in progress, like, okay, Christ will make it work for me that uh, my friends are dying. No, the work is done. This is an assurance to John to see that. Let's keep moving. I could go longer. The hairs of his head were white, like the white, like white wool, like snow. Only one time is anyone in the Bible referred to like that. It's in the book of Daniel. It's God. This Jesus is not just a son of God, not just uh, a spirit, certainly not another prophet like some groups would say. He is God. So when people knock on your door and say, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus says he's Christ? There's one of them. Okay? This is God. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Okay, think about fire. In the Old Testament, it always meant destruction. In the New, it starts to mean purity. Everything he looks upon is either destroyed or purified. You and I have that option. He looks, and John looks around and says, what's this God is looking? And everything he looks on, he is dealing with definitively. It is either burned up or it is saved. But nothing will escape what he's looking at. Okay, moving on. His feet were like burnished bronze. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. If you know Daniel, the revelation will become a little more open to you. In, remember where the dreams Nebuchadnezzar has, the king has, and um, he has different feet. Remember that? And he keeps having different feet. One's made of clay um, and then iron, all these different things. The point of that story was in Daniel to say, your feet are not strong enough to support the weight of the kingdom, king. So the kingdom will crumble because your feet are made of things that are not strong enough but nothing that they knew of would be stronger than burnished bronze. Whoever this is that's staring at John and talking to him can support the weight of all that's happening. His voice is like fire. Oh, we could keep going on. The rush of many waters. Water has a great ability to destroy and to soothe. This is God. So we won't go on anymore. Are you getting a sense here? John needs to be comforted. He needs to be comforted. He doesn't need a riddle. When you're in trouble, do you need a riddle from God? No, but also remember this. John is writing a letter to his churches that will be scanned by Roman leaders. So maybe he has to write in code. That's an interesting thought. A few scholars think that. I'm just throwing it out there. But whatever it is, we can't just think of this and scroll over it. You need to look at this and say, this same God is around now. Your work troubles, your marriage troubles, whatever it is, it may not get better. You may lose your job. Okay? Your faithfulness will not make your life better. Okay? Your circumstances won't be better because you obey Christ, but you'll endure it, and you'll praise through it, and you'll think, this is a great life. John, have you ever noticed that Paul never, ever, ever once in his letters prays for, the for circumstances to change? 
He prays for people, and he never says, I pray that you being persecuted would be taken from your persecution in those circumstances. Never says it. Why? It's not the point. Not the point. Because then you end up thinking that if you, because you have a good life, you're a good person. We know a lot of people, that's not true. I'm not. I have a wonderful life. I don't deserve a cent of it. Not a cent of it. So, wonderful stuff. Moving in. So, um, he is not a friend. He's powerful. He's pulled this curtain back, okay? And what's more, so it's one thing. Now, we're talking about a grand God, but you know what's even more miraculous? It says, in his right hand, he holds the stars. Now, in the ancient world, what was it that controlled destiny and fate? The stars. This God holds that in his hands. Don't look at the stars. Don't read the horoscopes for your for destiny. This God is so incredible. He holds those things. Not only that, what happens in verse 17? I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. This hand that holds everything together has put his hand on you. This is incredible. How can this not help John endure? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who's getting excited here. But this is, this is incredible stuff in Revelation. So what John saw there was behind the curtain. He pulls back the curtain, God, for John, and he says, I'm still here, and I'm with you, and I'm in charge. I know it doesn't look like it, but I've got a plan. I'll give you a quick example that wasn't in my um, notes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, have you ever seen how a traditional Indian wedding dress is made, a, a sari? So the old-fashioned way, now they're probably all just made on, uh, on machines. But the old-fashioned way, what it was, was a little child would sit down, usually a boy, because he'd be learning his father's trade. He'd sit down, and there'd be sticks poking up with spools of silk on them. They'd all be threading over his head to the back where there'd be a big, long, um, what do they call that? Uh, I guess it's a loom. And the father would be weaving this thing together. Now, the son would sit there and never look back. He'd have no idea what's being weaved. His job was the dad would tap him on this shoulder and he'd spool this one. That's this shoulder, he'd go to the next. So all that son did was respond to the prompting of the father. And eventually he looked around and saw what he was creating, but he had no idea beforehand. He could have been making anything. But when he turned around, he saw something incredible because he trusted that his father knew what shoulder to hit and when. In the same way, God, Jesus is saying, I know it's hard, John. I know your life may stink, but I better get that. But if you simply believe that I know what I'm doing, that I am the one in charge of this, trust me. You don't need to understand why people are suffering, but I do. And that is what's coming across. That's point two. He is there. He's over us. He is with us. Moving to number three. He is under. So I said earlier, if he's over, that's nice, but it's not everything. But, you know, if Jesus is grand... And this is the great atheist argument. You know, if, God, if there's a God and he's all-powerful and, all, and he's all-loving, then why do I suffer? If I suffer, it's because either he can't stop my suffering, so he's not powerful, or he doesn't care about my suffering and he's not loving, in which case, he's no God for me. This here tells us a different thing, and this is a, but it's a similar thing. You know, if, if he's up there, he's over us, and he's even suffering with us, but he hasn't done something to deal with your circumstances, God is just a grim midwife. He is assisted suicide helper. He is helping you into death. That's all he's doing. If death is still, if death which has lost its sting, we just sang, if it still has a sting, if it's still the end, 
if, he is, if, the, if the end, the, the omega, the telos, the eschatos of your life is still death, then Christ is no comfort to you. He's just holding your hand while you go out. Exit stage left. So this part is vitally important, that he is not a grim midwife, because he says this throughout this scripture here. I was dead, now I am alive, and I have the keys of death. Now I'm going to get into a little controversial area here. The Apostles' Creed says, um, I think I've been in a controversial area all day, by the way. But um, in the Apostles' Creed, it says something, uh, he descended into hell and on the third day he rose. Remember that? Now that, some people don't like that. Because, uh, and I'm not even going to get into what that's about. You see, what they mean when the Apostles' Creed says that is this, that he went down into hell and he preached to the sinners to give them a chance to come up. Now, some groups don't like that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is on the cross, when Christ suffered for you and I, do you believe the movies that say the reason his suffering was really just that he suffered physically more for you? Can I say be this? Think of it frankly. Jesus may have taken more of a beating than he should have, no doubt about it, but he didn't suffer much more than those other two guys on the cross next to him, not physically. The physical suffering of Christ is not what pays your sins. The, the sting, the, the penalty of sin is not physical death because you're all going to die and you're saved, some of you. Hopefully all of you. So it's not physical death that paid the price. It's what the, the scholars call the dereliction. It's being pulled from the Father. What you deserve for your sin, according to the Bible, is to be cut off from God. That is what Christ paid for you. He was cut off so that when he cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, where, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is he can't hear God. He's been cut off. He's, that's the penalty you and I deserve, not physical death. That's part of it, of course, but it's not all of it. So what happens here uh, is Christ did descend for our sake. He did suffer what we should have in that way. In fact, let me quote Daryl Johnson. He's a prof out in BC at uh, Regents. I think he's at Regents still says this about this, this passage. Jesus Christ walked into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy there is. On the cross, he let all the powers that threaten to undo us have their unrestrained way with him. He let death take him captive, and then he burst out of the prison and carried away the keys. You see, what he did was punch a hole in the side of death. He goes into its belly, punches a hole, and says, follow me. This is what it is that he, when he's saying this in Revelation, when he tells John, look, I have the keys of, of death, He's not just, this isn't just, you know, the way a king would say, I am king over this land and that land, and it's just meant to get you impressed. He's telling you something he's done for you and for I, that there is life after, and John needed to know that. And you know how we, you know, how we know he resurrected? There's so many things we could say, because the resurrection is a thing people often point to and say, how do we know it happened? Here's one simple example. I think I touched on it during announcements once when I got carried away. But um, have you ever seen the movie Stand By Me? I guess Stephen King wrote it, but it's from the 80s, I think, or 90s. So in that, there's a, one character, uh, kind of the main character, his brother has died. And every time that he walks by his brother's room, the room is immaculate. Because you know what happens when you lose a child? You leave the room exactly the way it was because you don't want to forget him. You don't want to forget him. So you leave it that way for a long time, maybe long, depending, I don't know. I've never lost a child, so I'm not making any way light of this. But that's what we do. We make a shrine because we don't want to forget. But have you ever noticed if you go to the Holy Land now, nobody knows where Jesus was buried? 
I mean, they have ideas. Here's this tomb. Here's that one. If you have the right amount of money, you can go to whatever one. And I'm not belittling it. I think it's a wonderful thing that we don't know where he was buried. We know where, where uh, Gandhi was killed. We know where Buddha died. We know all these things. You know why? Because if your son is just away at college, you don't look by his room and lament and keep it perfect. You say, what a slob. <laughs> right? That's what you do because he's not gone. Not really. And the, the early apostles, you know why we don't know where his tomb is? Because they didn't think he was dead. That's, it's bizarre in the world of religions to see that. But that's what's happening here. He went under so you don't have to. Because whatever John saw, he believed it. And if you and I, see, hopefully this is helping with Revelation. It's not as creepy as it sounds. One day maybe I go through verse by verse right to the end. It gets more fun. Because um, it's not. You need to understand that John is hearing a vision for John, but one that also works for us. Can you imagine if your parents and your child is struggling? Would you go to them and say, okay, I know you broke your arm, Timmy, but what is black and white and turns, and you start giving them a riddle? Was that the kind of parent you are? No, they understood what this meant. You and I don't. It's so far removed from our terminology, our lingo. We need to understand it. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't point to things happening in the future. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is don't be afraid of it. Don't start looking up. You know, I can't, you know, this is one of my pet peeves here. I shouldn't do this from the pulpit. You know, in, in Acts 1.8, when the, Jesus has ascended, the apostles are all looking up. And what does the angel say to them? Why are you looking up? He's coming back. Just go and do your job. So my friends, Revelation is an incredible book meant for you now. Don't look up. Don't look up. If he's coming tomorrow with the blood moons or in 20,000 years, your job is the same. Care for people, tell them about Christ, and trust him that he is on the throne. That's what John is getting at. And if you can understand what John is and repeat this to yourself constantly, you'll endure anything. Anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for this. Thank you for the grace of these people here as well, Lord, to um, hear that. Lord, we want to encounter you in the scriptures. We want to not be afraid of any part of, this, of what you have left us. God, we trust that it's all meant for our good. We don't think you're a, a riddle weaver. God, that you are, you are the one standing in our midst. You put your incredibly powerful right hand on us to comfort us. And um, thank you for that, Lord. Help us to endure Help us to believe these things we read. It's so hard to believe. We're like the man in the Gospels who say, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, and uh, just thank you for what your son has done for us. Thank you that he is over us, he is with us, and he went under for us as well. God, you're awesome. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.